So Dr. Kelsey Reed is a practicing school psychologist in Upper Marlboro, Maryland, which is in Prince George's County, Prince George's County Public Schools. She graduated from Loyola University in Chicago with an award-winning dissertation titled Investigating Exclusionary Discipline, Teachers, Deficit Thinking, and Root Cause Analysis. Dr. Reed is passionate about advancing educational equity for minoritized students, disrupting the school-to-prison pipeline, and identifying and implementing alternatives to suspension. She's presented at the community, state, and national levels on school discipline practices. You can follow her on Twitter at Dr. Kelsey Reed and on Instagram at Dr. Kelsey Reed. She also runs a social justice advocacy Instagram page called at Sassy for Social Justice. And Dr. Reed is co-authoring a book with Dr. Brian McClure that will be published by the Times 10 Publications in 2022. And the book is called Hacking Deficit Thinking. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Kelsey Reed. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. You know, um, it is something that, that I miss a little bit about DC being here in Texas, and that is the, the, just the mindedness of everyone in DC of how at your fingertips you can change something because you're just so close to all of the the activism mm -hmm. that that's around you right yes definitely definitely i try to stay as involved as i can in um policy at both the state and um, national level right in dc <laughs> so i understand right. that yes <laughs> and a lot of people i think in in texas you know are, are as you get further away from dc at least you don't really always think about schools as a place where you are you are performing some social justice you know mm -hmm. activism but absolutely. it is absolutely the place where it all starts mm -hmm. definitely yes and i just know growing up in dc like the, that was our pastime we were always going to a, a demonstration or a rally mm -hmm. or co lobbying congress or something <laughs> yep and also a lot of the like public policy events and conferences happen in dc so i oh, have an opportunity yeah. to go to them because i live so close by <laughs> Wow. Yeah. I mean, you just, you, you don't realize when you live there, how like you take for granted all that stuff when yeah. you live there. Sounds like you got to come back. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> My husband's, he's 100% Texan. So okay. <laughs> he, <laughs> he lived in Maryland for three years and he said, never again. Those were his dark years. <laughs> I was oh, like, no. okay, it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, very big difference. So um, just a little bit of some questions about what you're working on. Um, so can you just explain to us what is exactly deficit thinking? What's the alternative to deficit thinking? And you're not the only one that seems to have used this term. Like, who, What's the history behind it? Who coined it? Why? Why did you, your idea for this dissertation stand out and get an award? Yeah, thank you. Um, so deficit thinking is essentially a hyper focus on weakness. So it could be us as individuals stressing our weaknesses or in our work in schools, it would be described as the overarching emphasis that our education system places on identifying weaknesses and deficits in students in order to quote unquote, 
properly educate them. So the issue with this type of thinking is that it's rooted in biases that are racist, classist, and ableist, and lead to increased deficit thinking when we work with students who aren't white, able-bodied, middle-class males, right? So in many instances, this deficit thinking turns into blame. So he's lazy. Her parents don't care about learning. He never learned how to behave at home. She's low. What do these terms mean, first of all? And also, how are they impacting the expectations that we set for students and how we interact with students to ensure that they're successful? And so, no, I'm not the first by any means to use this term. Um, I believe it stems back to Richard Valencia, who has written many books on this topic. I think he just had a new one that came out, um, along with Kurt Dudley Marling, who's huge in this field, um, specifically as it relates to neurodivergence. Um, in terms of who coined the term, though, I don't want to get it wrong because I'm sure it may stem even further back. But I do know that these are two very notable people who have done considerable work um, in this area. I think um, about my dissertation, I think it received so much praise specifically because I went beyond admiring a problem. So in education research spaces, we love identifying problems. We love it so much, but we have a harder time thinking about solutions to these problems, often because the solutions have to entail a complete disruption to our current way of doing things, right? Solutions harder. So for my dissertation, I was interested in what leads to racial disparities in school discipline practices. And I found not only that teachers with higher usages of deficit thinking that blame students for their behaviors were more likely to have higher rates of disparities in their discipline practices, but I also found that when we reframe how we view behavior and think about it in terms of what supports we are providing to address a behavioral need, we see a reduction in blame-based rhetoric. So basically language is key and a simple reframe in how we talk about our students can seriously impact what supports we're willing to provide in comparison to those more punitive or restrictive responses like suspension or expulsion that stem from this deficit thinking. Um, yeah. Crazy. Yes. So it's like not just an idea like or a theory. It's like a real mm -hmm. thing. Like it really Absolutely. Yes. Yes. We have in, in our book, we provide so many examples of what it looks like. So the phrases I said earlier, like he's low, he's this, a lot of the talking we do in schools about students to students to teachers, family is, is deficit based. Wow. So deficit thinking can be applied to both behavior and academic um, struggles. What are some examples of ways that you recommend for schools to change their deficit, deficit thinking? Um, what are some of the success stories that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, once again, deficit thinking is this hyper-focus on weaknesses, right? So in both behavioral and academic terms, it manifests as a fixation on what students can't do. So they can't read, they can't behave, they can't sit still or whatever. And this thinking leads to us feeling the need to quote unquote fix that academic weakness or behavioral weakness. And the problem with this is that we forget about what the student can do. So they can't read, but first of all, you know, why? We need to get at the root of that. And second of all, what can they do that can facilitate success for them? So we've kind of been trained to believe that the only way we can ensure students are successful is to identify the worst in them. And in my work, I believe that we need to be identifying the best in students and building from there, not only um, because it sets a different tone, but also because it kind of retrains our brain 
to understand the impact we can have on student success, rather than feeling as if there's nothing we can do to support a student. So with behavior, it gets really sticky. And this is the area that I'm most interested in, I'll say, um, because this is where we see so much. So with behavior, it all comes down to what we are attributing the problem to be. So for example, um, do we believe that Johnny is displaying disruptive behaviors in class because he is inherently a bad kid? Of course, we would never say that. But you know, what are we thinking in our head is the reasoning for the um, or are we reframing that behavior to understand what's behind it? And in some cases, are we viewing that behavior in terms of a strength? So um, the book that Dr. McClure, um, he's another school psychologist, and I are releasing this fall, um, essentially is a practical tool for schools to use to disrupt deficit thinking and to be more strength-based. So the opposite of deficit thinking would be um, engaging in strength-based practices. So one simple example we talk about in the book um, is reframing our adjectives. So instead of calling a student hyperactive, we can say energetic. Instead of calling a student um, attention-seeking, we can say that they're connection-seeking. Um, instead of saying that they're a tattletale, we can say that they're justice-oriented. So these simple reframes, once again, kind of rewire our brain and we can think of alternative ways to allow them to use those strengths at school to contribute to the school community in a productive way. So a lot of what we stress in the book is um, in the importance of taking the time to proactively identify student strengths. So there are a lot of strength-based assessments. Um, sorry, I don't know if you guys can hear that um, alarm. I'm, I'm in D.C., so lots of <laughs> emergency vehicles passing by. Um, but there, there are a lot of strength-based assessments and tools out there that are becoming popular, um, some that cost money, others that are free or low cost, with the sole purpose of identifying the strengths of students. So when we set this tone and allow students to be involved in this process of being aware of their strengths, it makes it easier for them and for us to grapple with those weaknesses because we already understand that those weaknesses don't define us. Wow, that's, that's like thinking about something, I, I mean, I knew today I would have a mind shift, you know, and I think, <laughs> yes. I think I, you know, it's starting to come see it. I mean, today I was thinking about, I tested a kid mm -hmm. and this kid was perfect in subtraction with regrouping, which I don't know, like kids are awful at it. Even, <laughs> you know, they learn it and they forget it mm -hmm. and, but couldn't do division. And he kept mm -hmm. trying to do it long division. And I, I usually don't take a moment to teach kids. I usually just test them and move mm -hmm. on. But I, I just stopped myself and I was like, oh my gosh, you are so good at subtraction. Why don't you just mm -hmm. use that multiple, you know, repeated subtraction for mm -hmm. your division and you'll, mm -hmm. you'll be, have it perfectly, you know, and so we yeah. practiced a little bit. And I, I think that might be, I mean, I'm trying to think like in our profession, when testing like for, for learning disabilities, what comes to mind is like, we're looking for deficits. That's our mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yep. um, um, I feel like you, you answered the next question I had on the list. But um, so when I, I think of, uh, but when I really think about our jobs, I, I keep thinking of this term called slow learner, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know, like people are still shocked to hear, but apparently it's settled literature from what I've been reading. The mm. slow learner is not supported by research. There's basically just no such thing. It's a theory. And it's, mm -hmm. this doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So, um, by, but the alternative is an RTI model and teachers and school systems aren't doing RTI or progress monitoring 
And there's just a whole lot of gray when we're trying to make a diagnosis. So do you have any advice for us in these sort of uncertain times? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. First, let me talk about what you just really quickly um, mentioned um, when you were working with the student and kind of that focus on what they could do. I um, just wanted to touch on that's a great example or a great example, I guess, of like finding opportunities within that's within the scope of our practice to just kind of like chip away at deficit thinking, right? So when I work with students, I try to do similar things. Um, what I'm going to try this year is actually using um, having students complete a brief um, strength finder quiz before we even start testing. So they can kind of have an idea of what those strengths are and we can talk about them before we like basically have them do a bunch of like really challenging things. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there too as kind of like another thing to maybe keep in your back pocket that we can like kind of quickly do um, while we're already working with students. Um, but yes, discrepancy models, patterns of strengths and weaknesses, um, all of these. I think the fact that there is so much argument and disagreement over what constitutes a learning disability, what slow, slow learners are, how we measure any of this kind of gets back to the actual question, which is like, what is a learning disability, right? Um, I know I mentioned Dr. Dudley Marling earlier, who um, spends a lot of time talking about how our environments contribute to the presence of a quote unquote learning disability. Um, so when you combine that with the fact that as human beings, we represent a very diverse range of neurobiology. So naturally, not everyone is going to learn at the same rate as their peers. So I'm not explicitly stating that this is what I believe, but a lot of theorists state that learning disabilities were created by us in order to have a system that quote unquote other people, you know, in order to continue portraying this idea of average. So average, you know, we know we use that term so much, but average can't exist without people who aren't average. So when this idea is debunked, our whole education system kind of falls apart because everything we do in schools stems from this idea of there being an average that is easily measured. If you don't hit that average, you're a slow learner, you have a disability. Um, and so another thing that we talk about in the book is the idea that our education system hasn't changed much since it was first created. So our system was designed for white, able-bodied, middle-class males. So naturally, anything that doesn't fit in this box is deemed unworthy in these spaces, but we need a justification for that othering. So no, I'm getting a little off track here, but I say all of that because it's really important for us to understand our history because history almost always holds a deeper meaning of why we do things the way we do. So um, personally, my advice would be to not rely on one sole mechanism for identifying who needs extra support, aka special education, um, but collecting data from as many sources as possible with an emphasis on that parent perspective. Um, I personally was trained in an RTI approach because I did my graduate work in Illinois and I will say that I can count on one hand the amount of times I administered a cognitive assessment to students during my graduate practicums. However, of course, I now live in Maryland and I did my internship in Virginia, where we're required to use, you know, these discrepancy models or patterns of weaknesses, which to me are kind of similar, very similar to discrepancy models. So um, I, you know, in terms of talking about RTI versus, um, you know, traditional cognitive testing, it's hard to give advice because I understand that everyone operates in different contexts with different levels of independence. But the main thing I think that I would like to see is some sort of true integration of these approaches 
that also intertwines this strengths-based approach. So RTI is not a thing that we do. It's more of in how we operate, how we are. So when we operate from the expectation that there will be neurodivergence is something that's so important. We're expecting neurodivergence. We're expecting differences of need in our classrooms. We can recognize that just because one student isn't doing the same thing as another student doesn't make them disabled. It just means that they need something different from their peers. And then when we operate from this RTI perspective, we know how to scaffold, we use approaches that allow students to advocate for what they need. And then we remember that success looks different for all students. So, and we, you know, the intense level of testing we do to qualify a student for additional support at that point would only be necessary if and when a student's needs are so discrepant that we truly can't meet their individual needs through the supports we already have present. So, yeah, I mean, I think that would be, and that kind of chips away at this whole need for othering, you know, if we already have those supports at the general education level in a perfect world anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely taking down some of those barriers and just mm -hmm. making interventions available to all without having to jump through so many hoops to get right. to them. Right. Um, so do you think that um, deficit teaching is actually pre preventing people from implementing RTI? Because that's one of the things that I've been trying to get down to the bottom with to at this with this program is like why are why are people so against doing RTI? What's wrong with it? <laughs> yeah. I think personally, um, I think it's twofold. I think part of it is that when we so this deficit thinking, yes, when we blame students for their weaknesses, which we do this in schools, you know, like we don't mean to, but we do. And when we do that, we're more likely to believe that nothing can be done on our end to support them. So for example, Johnny can't read. And as a teacher, I've tried everything. I hear this all the time. I've tried everything. There's nothing I can do to help them. That's deficit thinking, right? If you believe, oh, wow, there's nothing I can do, that turns into, oh, wow, Johnny must have a disability. That is the only possible explanation because I've tried everything. Um, so that leads to teachers believing that no additional support they provide will change his learning. And then we have this other assumption that when a student qualifies for special education, they're no longer our responsibility because the disability explains why they're struggling. And it almost gives people an out. So I think like with our special education system being treated as this amazing thing that some students need and when we get them identified then they get all this extra support there's this kind of like oh well that's a student that has a disability that's not my responsibility but then i will say on the flip side to get at your question what's the barrier we have to acknowledge all of the factors that are impacting education today and you know if you're in the schools we have the great resignation we have teachers being pushed way beyond their breaking point we have teachers with literally no hands to help. We have no paraprofessionals. We have politicians impacting what we can do and what we can say. And we're just expecting so much from our teachers without giving much in return. So asking them to do, to do once again, I'm saying do RTI, which it's not a thing we do, it's how we are. So that's one just reframe that we can do, like operating from that approach. It sounds like a lot for teachers and it can be really scary when they're already so overworked and so overwhelmed. And the current system, quote unquote, is working. You know, they identify a student with needs and they 
get them get them out of their of their responsibility. So um, personally, I don't see a space right now where RTI can be implemented in its true integrity. Um, a lot of people say they're implementing it, but it's almost worse when it's being half done than if it weren't being done at all. So it's hard to really, um, you know, think about what it would look like today. I've seen beautiful examples of RTI um, when I was in Illinois, but it takes a whole team um, of people being on the same page and working together. Um, but what we need to be focused on right now, I think, is repairing our broken system. So special ed, RTI, all of that operates underneath this broader system of educational failure. So um, let me not be so negative or deficit-based and say, like, I also think this period um, of time is a great opportunity to attempt new approaches. So we're seeing that what we're doing um, is not working. So I'm hopeful that we can kind of try to truly implement this approach because it is evidence-based, um, more evidence-based than the, um, I don't, I don't want to get into, but more evidence-based than I think some of the approaches we use right now for cognitive. Yeah, I I definitely, I mean, one of the reasons I started this was because I was like, gosh, I'm just working so hard and there must be some other solution, right? Yeah. What? And I, I keep using this, uh, this phrase or this mantra that if I'm, if we are working so hard, um, mm -hmm. maybe what we're doing is not working and mm -hmm. that's why we're working so hard. And I just yeah. would love to find ways to make things work better. So eventually we wouldn't have to work so hard. And right. I feel too like w when you are sucking all the resources for kids that could not have these struggles if they had access mm -hmm. to the right kinds of interventions mm -hmm. without having to go through special ed, that we would actually have the resources we need for the kids that you, like you said, like, oh, for sure our special ed, you know, mm -hmm. that for sure need right. special ed services. Like we're sucking their resources away from them to mm. to serve these kids that could be served without special education services. Absolutely, yes, yep. And that, in a way, right there is could be thought of as social. You know, trying to uh, stick up for the social justice of those most mm -hmm. disabled children. Mm-hmm. Yep. And another, and that, another. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to go in a different direction. Let's keep us on track. Well, another <laughs> thought I was also having is that a lot of these methods that we're taught and identifying focus on how rare is this situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you pull up these statistical printouts and, oh, this is only in the first percentile. It's so rare. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, there's so many things that are rare that still mm -hmm. aren't a disability. I mean... If you and I keep going back to twenty some percent of children have dyslexia, and we mm -hmm. call that a disability. But ten percent of people are left-handed, and we don't call that mm -hmm. a disability. Right. So what? Where? What is a disability anymore? You know? Yes. I mean, I'm my my yes. my school is now I have five hundred sixty students or so there that but. I'd say 10% of them, I do have an autism unit. 10% um, of them have autism. What's atypical anymore? Mm -hmm. I mean, if we're looking for atypical. <laughs> right, right. So, and, uh, you know, ahead. they always, no, you're fine. I was, I was going to say, they, they always say that if we have a, 
larger percentage of students in special education students at tier three, then that's a tier one problem. You know, like right. that's a problem at the general level that's leading to this, like you were saying, this just overexertion on our end um, of all of these, this influx of students that have quote unquote disabilities. Right. And I think a lot of times when we say, oh, you know, teachers get the blame for, oh, you didn't do it. You didn't do RTI. You didn't do, like you say, do RTI. You didn't do intervention. Right. But really how, and and you talk about them being burnt out and um, mm -hmm. all of that, but all of that comes from leadership, right? I mean, mm -hmm. policy, leadership, all, yeah. all of this, these changes have to start from the top and come yeah. and build down. So mm -hmm. I don't know, is, is there any, any, laws or sort of policy support or follow or anything you can think of to add to that that we can i mean if there's got to be action is that there's got to be action if you want satisfaction the song says right it's got to be action if you want satisfaction and if not for yeah. yourself then for the, for the young ones that's yeah. what the song says so um what do we do <laughs> what can we support yeah. no you're right and i will be honest with you and say that i personally this does not mean it doesn't exist, but I am not aware of any policies or political, you know, movements that are happening in this specific area regarding deficit thinking. Um, what I personally just, and this is just me, I like to focus on what's within my sphere of control. And as of right now, you know, I have no control over needing to identify a deficit. I understand that this is a legal obligation that my state requires in order for special education services to happen. So um, what I do control, though, is how I talk about these deficits with students and parents. So with um, parents, you know, I just I try to be as strength based as I can while operating within this system that I know is problematic. So I know I mentioned earlier the when I'm testing, I look for strengths. Um, I also when reviewing with the parents, I always emphasize that you know i have to talk about these weaknesses in order to justify a qualification for services but these are not representative of who your child is and i remind them that the tests are normative and they don't take into account growth and successes um and i just i try to be as strength-based as i can so i'm really big on understanding where i can make an impact and realizing what things i don't have control over yet growth mindset right <laughs> so i mean i like i said i'm all about political um political action i am hoping that when the book comes out and we can really kind of start getting a movement going um of of this and especially in the special education world um and the in just the idea of deficits and kind of really the impact and the toll that it takes on or that it has on our students um and figuring out ways that we can kind of at the top um reduce that reliance but right now i get it schools are political um i have three schools and the principal totally of each school totally dictates the vibe of the school so you know you find ways some things that i do in some schools i have to you know change it up in a different school because of um, that political environment um but yeah sphere of control definitely wow yeah i mean i think that's what a lot of people in this group have said when when i've said oh you know we've got to do something we've got to come together and do something we don't know what we're going to do but we're going to do something everybody's oh you can't do anything about it but then i'm like but that's deficit thinking right there it is yeah you can't do yep. anything about it <laughs> yep and what like, i will say yeah 
uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I was just to say, well, we have to get in a mindset that we can, and we just have to yeah. figure it. We have to work together to figure out what it is. Exactly. And that's huge is finding your people. Like I say sphere of control, that's at the individual level. But when you talk me working with other teachers in the building, working with other students in the building, you get a team of people, the amount of grassroots, like um, activism that I've seen that actually turns into law is crazy. That's what I actually saw in Illinois. Um, I was working on the school discipline legislation. Um, it actually stemmed from a group of students who were tired of being suspended, expelled. So they formed, they basically, their work led to legislation being passed that reduced the use of suspensions in schools. So I think people don't realize how much power we have when we all work together to solve, um, solve a problem. Yeah, I mean, just thinking that way just gives you so much more motivation, so much hope mm -hmm. that even if you don't know the answer right now, maybe you have other people that are willing to help you work through it and find a solution. Mm -hmm. And maybe you won't get so burnt out if we have that kind yeah. of thinking. Exactly. And imagine if you work with a bunch of people that aren't motivated and they are they are just thinking positive and trying to find mm -hmm. solutions. You mm -hmm. just it just all kind of contagious, I guess. Yep. And that's it's all about rewiring our brain. I think I've said it a couple of times, retraining, yeah. just using different different ways of talking about students, talking with students, talking to teachers, reframing when they some, say something that's deficit based. Um, and that just kind of can be contagious. Yeah. In the school um, or at least people understand that when you're around them, you're not tolerating that type of that type of language, that type of mentality. I mean, you say look, look into history and I, I always go back to you know Brown versus Board of Education. Yep. And I think that was the major legislation that showed that you could you could change education and through you know by attacking deficit thinking and um, exclusionary type of thinking. So um, I mean, but I, I keep going back to that vision of inclusion that was with Brown versus Board of Education hasn't yet been fully realized in special yeah. ed because the the last straw of that the last stem of that they call it the cascade effect is what i read in some book um mm -hmm. that you were we were going to start with closing the special education you know the the, the institutions and then mm -hmm. and then you know moving to special education schools and then closing those and moving to special education classrooms and then realizing mm -hmm fully inclusive environments and uh, inclusion is an art to mm -hmm. to you know to practice and um to do and it, it just it really takes a lot of collaboration and focus mm -hmm. um and i just I, do you think that addressing deficit thinking could play that role in creating that one more step to reach those more inclusive environments for special mm -hmm. education students you think it could help encourage more interventions prevent even prevent disabilities or perhaps turn us i don't know have you seen like that iowa doesn't even have their non-categorical yes <laughs> you think maybe it would turn to something like that or we would be non-categorical yeah so yes i think like i kind of said like the whole idea of hacking deficit thinking is reducing that hyper focus on weaknesses so training our brains to look for strengths because all students have strengths um and if you tell me otherwise i'm going to ask you what you've done to intentionally look for those strengths um especially when it comes to our students with the most needs 
So we need to identify and cultivate those strengths. Um, in the book, we talk about some of the research-based strengths that often go undermined for students with identified disabilities. So for example, the visual spatial skills of students commonly identified with ADH, the amazing knowledge that many students with autism have about specific topics in ways that we can truly and not superficially bring those strengths out to support their success. So I do think when we talk about RTI and um, I guess, quote unquote, preventing disabilities, I think we need to remember that a lot of the times, um, especially when we're talking about learning disabilities, what we're really trying to do with RTI is prevent our own perception of a disability. So oftentimes when a student begins the RTI process, we go into it with this expectation that there's a disability rather than going into it with the expectation that once we provide all of this extra support, the student will be successful. I personally typically experience it's like, oh, we have to go through the process before we can refer. We have to do this. It's like checking a box kind of. But so once again, this is an example of how our own perception and biases kind of cloud our judgment and can lead to self-fulfilling prophecies for us and for our students um, if, we, if we don't use the RTI process as it's intended. Um, and it's funny, you speak about Iowa. I had no idea that Iowa operated like this. Um, so I, I looked into it and I think this for me is exactly what I would love to see in more states. I think um, it, it all goes back down to this deficit, blame-based, feeling the need to other people um, when we reduce our reliance on labels. So we're not, we're not looking at what a student has or what a student is. We remember that the purpose of an IEP is to provide students with the tools they need to be successful. So we're not trying to cure a disability. Um, it's all about the environment. And when we think about special education in this way, as an extension of the supports that we provide for everyone, we ensure that we're not blaming students and we're thinking about what students need. So I personally, I see this in IEP meetings all the time. So I go through my whole spiel, I'm talking about numbers, labels, categories, all that. And the parents, they don't care. They're like, okay, what are we gonna do about it? What will their day-to-day -day schooling look like? So like, imagine if we could skip over the need to identify all these weaknesses, identify what that diagnosis is, and just focus on who the student is, <laughs> the strengths and weaknesses that they have, and then what the plan is to best support them. I don't know if that's how Iowa actually is. I'm sure that there are like flaws and things that make it trickier for them, but I just, I really do, I, this, I hate the idea of this labeling, this needing to identify the worst in people in order to get them what they need. Right, right. And as you're talking, it kind of brings to mind for me all the work by Oliver Sacks because he mm -hmm. would just tell a story and he would follow the patients in their environment and he would mm -hmm. just bring out how they, not what they couldn't do, but how they mm -hmm. could do something differently. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, a lot of people don't realize that he was, he was, you know, we learn about Vygotsky in school all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, oh my gosh, Vygotsky, you know, but that's <laughs> yes. why Vygotsky was so popular was because he took the narrative mm -hmm. and he, and he told the data in this narrative way where it wasn't just numbers and yep. cut points and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that. And so I remember listening to some interview of Dr. Sachs where he said he actually got a letter from Vygotsky and was just um, just so honored by that because, you know, he was trying to 
achieve this mm-hmm. narrative storytelling about his patients. And mm-hmm. I think we could take a lot of that same approach. I mean, I'm, I ran into a kid that I tested in third grade, but by the time I saw him again, he was in 11th or 12th grade and oh, wow. he was actually working in the same place as my, my son. And I said, oh my gosh, I remember writing your report. And, <laughs> and usually I would never want to show a, you know, a kid their own report. There's mm-hmm. just so many negative, you know, things about it. But I remembered that one and how he was really talking about all the parts of a castle and using these big words and vocabulary mm-hmm. and his interest in knights and middle ages mm-hmm. and all of that. So mm-hmm. I had written this long story about, you know, our conversation and I went and brought it to him and he was like, I forgot all about that. And I didn't feel oh, bad no. about sharing him. I mean, imagine if we had to mm-hmm. think about if we have to share this report with this kid as an adult, mm-hmm. yeah, would we want to show that to them? That's what I yeah. think. Like, that just gives me shivers. Like, mm-hmm. wow, you know, would we really want to show our report to this kid as an adult? Mm-hmm. They're, they yeah. are, they're little adults. They will be little exactly. adults. Exactly. <laughs> and do you they're have people. it? I don't know. In Maryland, it's like this. But once students, I think it's when they're in eighth grade, they can start attending the IEP meetings. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. at 14, you have to okay. have a goal or you have to have an assessment for transition, right? Oh, okay. Um, so ours is they they can attend things and they can listen just through the whole, I mean, that part is, that's part of it too, but they're mm-hmm. present. And it's just interesting to see kind of how the conversation is just a little bit different when the student is present and listening to everything that we're saying while we're reviewing the reports, while we're talking about it. I just, I think we always need to be thinking about that. What down the line if the student reads this or right now if i was talking to the student and kept saying the word deficient over and over and over again how that would impact them so i i personally i i like to tell students what their relative strengths are while we're working um so for example like if i find out that they were like average in the area of fluid reasoning and deficient in comprehension knowledge or something i would talk about what that means and and ask them if they agree and tell them ways that they can advocate for what they need in the classroom based on that if they do agree with it so Mm -hmm. i would recommend i mean i think there are so many opportunities for us to be more um, transparent with our students about why we're working with them and what it is and how they can use what we're doing with them to to get what they need in the classroom Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been trying to shift the way I'm doing my assessments for sure, just to focus a lot more on the academics and um, to to guide, help guide the instruction. And what you said about there being a, a sort of a hybrid um, method, there is there it does seem to be. I know people are calling it evidence based assessments. Is what I'm seeing. I'm trying to explore that a little bit more. I've got um, I have a plan to. Uh, uh, interview Dr. Um, Matthew Burns from oh, University good. of Missouri. Have you heard of him? Yep, sure have. Yeah, and he's a big advocate on Twitter. I see him a lot there. Um, really against IQ testing. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so scattered uh, matter. <laughs> yeah, right. And I did have Jeremy Masaic on. Um, he's not totally against IQ testing, but he's like, why it's wasting your time pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, right. I mean, to hear him and Burns and you and say like, 
to do to do an evaluation for learning disability doesn't require you to have an mm-hmm. IQ test per se. You know, you yep. just only have to show that they're not, you know, they don't meet any of those rule outs, intellectual disability or, um, you know, or it's not because of a sociological reason or what, what have you. But mm-hmm. um, that is just mind blowing after, I would say, what, 13, 14 years in Texas where majority of us have been doing um, dual discrepancy consistency model where mm-hmm. you're not just finding one deficit. You have to find two deficits and they have to be, co- you know, they have to, yeah. the stars have to align. I mean, and what we do every day is just so um, shifts our mind that it's like you yep. need something to shake it up, to unshift our mind, another to steer it in another way. And uh, it's just a challenge now. It's like, I don't know how much did that, I feel like that just, you may have even done some damage to the way we think. Like it's all of that deficit thinking has just made us like not be you be harder and harder for us to shift the way we think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing we have to remember is deficit thinking also impacts our own self-worth and how we think about ourselves. So, you know, we've talked about a lot of this in terms of our students, but um, my my co-author, Dr. McClure, he tells this story every once in a while that he, when he goes in, uh, with different schools and districts, one of the first questions he asks is, um, how many of you can identify one of your strengths? And like, not very many people raise their hand. <laughs> so mm. we just in general, as a society, have a really hard time thinking about strengths, talking about strengths. So then that really is translated to our students too. We can talk about weaknesses all day long, but like, deficit thinking is so powerful in so many ways and it's so harmful um yeah right i mean i just think about if you have a deficit what are you you're going to go you, you know you have work to do to fix it whereas if you have mm-hmm. a strength you have something to celebrate exactly. oh like i'd rather celebrate <laughs> yes things all the time <laughs> and also when you have an idea of what your strengths are when you meet those challenges that are your weaknesses, right? You understand your own strengths so you can persevere through those weaknesses. And you know that those weaknesses don't define you or those deficits don't define you because you have strengths in other areas. I'm gonna bring Zervonia, she's got a comment. Okay. Zervonia, here we go. (laughs) Hey, Zervonia. Hey there, how are you? I'm good. (laughs) You had some comments, so I thought I'd just let you up on the stage and and share them. Um, well, I've, I've so enjoyed uh, the talk today. I really have. Um, and sorry about the echo. I'm just in a smaller um, room. I'm, I'm so sorry about the echo. So the this is what I was thinking, you know, because I had this conversation with with my husband. I actually invited him into the room too, and it was about how it is that our teenager kids. As I was, you know, listening to some of the Jeanette teachers talk. He's also a teacher. Um, about, um, you know, this kid is low and he's really struggling and, you know, my class is, is this and my class is that. I'm like, wow. I'm like, but we haven't had a chance to get to know them yet, you know, and what can we do? Okay, well, that doesn't, even if you kind of made that statement and doesn't um, change it, we need to do some positive work with them. Um, and so, although I might not have taught a title in deficit thinking, I was picturing, I was, a, we need to shift our perspective so that we, we were more positive, right? And and how could we do that? Like, how could we instill it? Well, I am happy to like hear about more um, SEL. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of our genetic teachers really have to have um, training now in social emotional learning, and and even hearing about like the um, 
um, how words just truly make a difference and, and changing how it is that they view their students. And, and although that doesn't change our testing practices, I'm thinking that if the mindset, mindset, mindset shifts um, for a lot of our educators, perhaps it will, I don't know, maybe it'll have a trickle effect. And, 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 and you know, our RTI process really sucks in most places, right? You know, um, but maybe it'll have an effect that we are referring less people because we aren't seeing them as a problem anymore. You know, we're really seeing that perhaps I need to adjust my teaching. Um, and kind of like, you know, um, you know, in Texas, we have to do like the screenings in kindergarten and first grade for like dyslexia. And I, I, I can't stand this even calling dyslexia screener because I would really love for it to be called like a phonics space screener or, a, you know, a letter knowledge screener or something like that. Because titling it a disability screener already gives the parents this notion that there's something that's up with their kid. Right. And so I can't stand that, but I can't change it because Texas isn't really listening to me. Um, <laughs> But what, what I can say, though, is that if we were to look at that information, you know, and I, I hate that it's really about the stuff that they didn't know, but I wanted it to be about, um, I wish it could shift so the teachers and the administrators could see that this is what we need to work on as a whole so all of our kids can have stronger skills and letters and, you know, blending and decoding and encoding and everything. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. All of that is spot on. And I think the example you gave, um, about, you know, the first week of school, I don't know, it was the first week of school for us. I think Texas starts a little earlier, but like this is the prime time where all of these deficit-based thoughts come because we see students how they are now and we expect that that's how they're gonna be for the rest of the year. And like, we make all these judgments. And I think there's a quote that's like, um, the expectations that teachers set like are highly predictive of how students are like students will always rise to the level of expectation you set. So if we're already the first month of school, oh, this student is, you know, struggling this, they're this, they're that, like it, it's done. Like we've already set the tone for how we're going to interact with them, which is, is tough. We don't do it intentionally, you know, it's just, it's how it is. But, you know, I, I agree. SEL is, is amazing. I think my schools are doing a lot more of it too, because that's once again, how we think about academics. You know, if you're struggling academically, we provide you academic support. If you're struggling behaviorally, we should provide you with social skills instruction, behavioral support, rather than, um, you know, punitive practices. Um, but but yeah, everything I hear you, I'm, I'm with you on all of it. I really like that example, Zervanio, about what we're calling our screeners. That's That was really um, yes. very impactful right there. Language, so, language matters. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. We, we've been talking about there's nothing we can do about it, but here I think there are a lot of little things that we can do about it as evidenced by our discussion today. Um, and so I would just say to you, are you doing as much as you can for the struggle? Because so and, you know, follow Dr. Kelsey Reed and get on up, everybody. Let's talk about revolution here, right? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I love the song. I, I love it. No, it. <laughs> we got to make it rain in revolution, right? So, uh, yeah, everybody, I just, I really appreciate this, Kelsey. I'm going to share this, um, you know, replay with everybody and put it on my podcast as well. And we'll get <laughs> Zavonia's playing around with the, I um, see it. I love that. <laughs> I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. That's cool. This app's always coming up with stuff. Um, but yeah, 
definitely I'm going to share this and maybe, maybe we'll catch on hopefully. And definitely your book. Yeah. Tell us real quick how we can um, either get your book or when it's going to come out or, yes. I mean, it seems to be like a book of, um, of something like a tool more than just. Yeah, it is. Literature it's reading. Uh -huh. Practical strategies for teachers, for educators to use to disrupt deficit thinking. So we have um, different chapters focused on diff different areas um, about how to identify strengths in your students. Um, we have a chapter on neurodivergence, um, working with your students in special education from more of a strength-based lens. Um, it's a whole, There's so there's eight different hacks and each of them have practical tools you can do tomorrow to start implementing those practices. And it should wow. come out, um, so it's coming out this fall. Um, we don't have the exact date yet, but um, if you follow us at Hacking Deficits on both Instagram and Twitter, we are very active um, and we're posting updates as we get them. Great. I can't wait. I'm definitely going to put it on my calendar to yes. make sure I get it. <laughs> Thank you and so much. I really just, like I said, that doing this show, I've just seen the power of just being positive and thinking positively um, is just, and changing my mindset. Everybody's like, how do you have 134 kids on your caseload and 30 <laughs> referrals at one time and still be able to do this? What are you doing? You know? And I'm like, you know, this is yep. what motivates me. <laughs> yep, exactly. Gotta yeah. find it. Thanks so much, so much again, and we will um, be following you for sure. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you everyone right. for listening.